welcome to the Sellerman Podcast with me, Sam Wilkin. So this time I'm speaking to Andrea Power. Now, Andrea is a cheesemaker. Uh, she runs a business called Hatchman's and Hatchman's are in Barbados. So we are leaving the UK and we are going to Barbados. I wanted to obviously shine a light on British producers because they're the people I know best and they're the cheeses I know best. But of course, the crisis we're in at the moment is global. Uh, so I also thought it was important to speak to people from all over the place. And Andrea was kind enough. We had met before in London, uh, as will become clear in the podcast. But uh, she was kind enough to take some of her time to speak to me uh, about how things are in Barbados, how her business is faring and what the future holds. I think hanging in is the appropriate term. And we're speaking, we met, uh, well, it feels like years ago now, but it's actually only only at the beginning of this year uh, in London. We were doing the Academy of Cheese Level 2 training days uh, and you were over um, and we tasted some cheese together and it was it was good. It was before the horror began. I feel like it was before the apocalypse, like it was the camp. Here we were merrily ch- tasting cheese and having a laugh at what tasted good, what tasted bad, what tasted funky, and and our entire world was just driven by, okay, how does the cheese taste? Yeah. And then wham, the world just turned on its head. What What's your usual customer base? So our, our clients are largely the upper, mid to upper end of the market. So sort of like middle, middle income. Um, basically, our cheese is not going to be the thing that you pick up every single time you go to the supermarket, it's still very much an opportunity purchase. Oh, this is nice. Let's have some of that. Um, and still very much for people who have more disposable income, just simply because of the cost of it, what it costs to put it on the table. Um, it is more complex in flavor than your kind of open stock cheddar. So it is going to be more of an acquired taste since this is a market where the open stock cheddar is literally the predominant product. And so people have tended to think that cheese ought to be mild tasting. Having said that, it's meant that, um, of course, on the other end, our our fresh goat's cheese sells like hot cakes and wildfire. So we can never keep enough of it on the market. Um, Having said that, our supermarket have gone from restricted opening hours over a week to less than 12 hours notice to shut down completely. So our supermarkets are completely closed. Um, that's ha- had a huge knock-on effect for all kinds of local food manufacturers because in this market, the supermarket is really where people get their food from. We don't have a huge presence of farmers market, even though we produce a fair quantity of farm, you know, farm to table items. Yeah. Those markets are still few and far in between. One major chain of supermarkets with maybe eight or nine in the chain, and that's where people get their food. And and that's the entity that determines what food we eat. So when once those are closed, you're your literally your supply chain it's not just interrupted it's completely destroyed and that's the position that we are in 
And when you're dealing with a supermarket, presumably you, you, you've pre-agreed certain quantities that you'll supply them per month. And it's, you know, for, for, for an outlet like that, that's a large number. So you presumably are sitting on a lot of stock. So, as, well, yes and no. How it works here, um, because the supermarket is pretty much the dominant supplier and determines what we eat, um, they actually give preference to the imported product, not necessarily the locally manufactured product, which is an ongoing battle that us local manufacturers have. Um, so tastes have been oriented to things that come in from outside, and even where good quality alternatives can be provided, we just don't stand a chance in terms of the buying power of the supermarket. So they obviously negotiate large quantities of distributors overseas, and they are under pressure to push those quantities and get those quantities sold. So we actually took on a distributor late last year to help us get our product everywhere, and that's gone really well. And so that distributor does the negotiations for us with the supermarkets and the other outlets. And um, so what we've been doing uh, with that arrangement, we've kind of managed a, a much tighter relationship between supply and demand because they're able to give us the analytics. The supermarkets um, are not going to say, right, we'd like this quantity per month. In fact, they've been very, very deliberately not taking large quantities from us, but then the distributor has been the one holding the stock and really pushing them to increase the volumes, which has kind of happened in a piecemeal sort of way. Um, it, it therefore means that while we did have stock on hand, we didn't have a lot of it. And in fact, we, we were still kind of behind the curve with the cheddars, obviously, because you you make cheddar cheese today, it's not ready to eat tomorrow. Mm -hmm. So, um, and, in, and in fact, this market has never had to confront the fact that cheese isn't actually ready the same time, except maybe goat cheese, which is still two days. So, we had a, you know, it's a, a very heavy, um, fast food kind of environment, just simply because we're importing it. So we have no connection with how it's made and understanding that there is a time like, uh, but such stock that we have on hand is stock that's really going to just taste better in another four to, to eight weeks. So that part's okay, but we have in fact ceased operation. So we can we have permission to operate because we're food manufacturers. So we're one of the exempted um, businesses, and I think that's obviously because government wants whatever food's being made in the country to be able to continue to be made. Never mind they dried up the actual market for the food. Um, so we have clearance to operate. It's just that with the distributor being constrained about who he can distribute to, um, because the supermarkets are closed, the hotels are all closed, every single one of them. So the flights in and out of the country have ended. Our borders are still officially opened. There are one or two flights that are coming um, maybe once a week from Canada. That's just to get their nationals and get them back to Canada. Um, so literally the tourism sector, which was a huge uh, outlet for us, and then the retail sector, both those things have been shut off. So I just took the decision um, when I've worked out that my farmers have alternative uh, options for their milk. So my cow's milk farmer 
he's just going to supply his milk to the to the big dairy processor which just produces milk and they have storage capacity um and they're doing that ultra high temperature pasteurized milk so they can afford to pasteurize and store um so my farmer said yeah no problem i'll send all the milk to the dairy and and that was the only thing that concerned me because i didn't want to leave my farmers in the lurch mm. and then i said to the staff right i'll continue to pay you through this crisis no matter what we just won't be doing any producing so at least i'm not putting out the full cost of production it's a small price to pay in the grand scheme of things is there any support uh for you carrying that uh salary bill if you like every month while you're not actually bringing any revenue in no there is no support government has not announced there have been there's been an announced there was announcement to assist sort of like 1500 very poor families they've asked for donations for that they have given some rebates on NIS contributions, like social security contributions. So like if you keep employees on, you can forego the employer's contribution of the social security. Right. Um, that's not very helpful. That's probably like maybe 10% of the salary cost. Um, and, and in fact, most companies have just opted to close because if you're not taking any money in, um, if, if unfortunately it's not that you're, you're trying to be harsh but if there just isn't any money what is your war chest in terms of what what's your time frame before this sort of this situation you're in now becomes untenable without support yes so my time frame is maybe about six to eight months just largely because i actually have a day job and so i am using my own personal salary to continue to pay my staff. Okay. Um, so, so technically speaking, if this were my only business and if, and if we're looking at this just on paper, I don't have six to eight months. This was like a yesterday situation. Sure. But because I have a job and I've continued to work from home, um, I'm fortunate that I can say, right, I can squeeze sacrifice a little more on my end just to keep my staff on and they've appreciated that and and it's because it's only two staff i'm not talking you know 10 15 employees which would just be impossible to do mm -hmm. um so that's also what puts me in a slightly different position to say you know a, a food processor where that's the only livelihood of the owner and they have maybe 15 20 employees They'll have no choice but to shut because, like I said, the foregoing the employer's contribution to Social Security is, is nothing more than a 10% reduction in your staff cost. But it's still coming from you. And if you, bottom line, any financial analyst looking at the situation, any shareholder looking at the situation, the question is going to be asked, why are we paying for labor that we're not using sure i mean i guess there's an element where you're preserving skills you know the, pe the people who work for you have a quite a specific skill set and that has value you know I, I guess you have to think about you know we were talking yesterday to another cheesemaker in the uk you know that there was a before and there will be an after you have to sort of plan for the after as well that you'll still be there and you know you'll still be making cheese and to lose those staff that have those skills would be 
you know, a real cost to the business, I would have thought. Yeah, I would not be able to reopen if that's, if those staff went elsewhere. So mm. for me, I've not looked at it as, you know, these guys are like family to me. Um, if, if I have an emergency in the middle of the night, these are people that will respond and assist me. So, mm. and, and because it's such a small unit, obviously we, we are very close. The families are very close, but it's beyond just the charitable aspect of it. It really is a, a dollars and cents thing. Mm-hmm. It's better to pay them through this furlough, so to speak, because we need to take this time to plan for after. So rather than wringing my hands, I've really not done a lot of assessment of, oh dear God, what now? I literally said to them Friday, right, we're going to cease operations today. I've made sure the farmers are okay. Next thing is you guys are going to come in, do a massive um, clean down, which we do once a week anyway. I said, we're just going to do that earlier, make sure everything is secured, make sure our stock is fine. You'll come in every two, three days or so just to check, stock, rotate, cheeses, etc. And I'll use this time to start revisiting the business plan because we want to be able to start doing um, butter and buttermilk uh, yeah. when once this is over. So I've got the accounts working, the cash flow numbers, and because government did announce that they're going to capitalize some of these funds, uh, special windows that they had. Um, so I was like, right. That's just plan for that you sound like you've kind of got your head around it very rapidly and made you know strong decisions early which is i think for the businesses that seem to be surviving better that's how they've done it you know they've they've responded quickly um but you know a lot of people that i speak to are talking about there's an opportunity in all of this you know whether it's on one end of the spectrum it's a sort of a a family opportunity you know I'm spending more time with my family than I would normally be able to but at the other end there's the business you know that people are actually experimenting and going well maybe we could produce butter maybe we could produce buttermilk maybe I do need to you know tighten up on our P&Ls and look at our costs and actually do the projects that you know with the best best will in the world always seem to slip down the to-do list because there's just the day-to-day operational needs of running a business like yours exactly exactly so we i literally have taken looked at it as kind of embracing that step back especially since i do have a day job i am running a business i am an only child so i have a dependent uh parent so to speak Mm -hmm. and then i have um grandparents who are in their 90s well we buried one on Thursday. There's a lot that's been going on. Um, and I've been kind of pulled in every which way direction. And you, you do end up being Jack of all trades, master of none. Mm -hmm. And you do end up missing critical opportunities or things you have to keep kicking down the road because you just not got the, the mental space Mm. to deal with with it so I've been using the time to really get that mental space to start to think about what I want to where I want to see Hatchman's going and we're going to be doing much more of the the slightly more bulk type of cheese and then have a small specialty window that then just mirrors the 
profile of our market and still allows us to, um, you know, aspire to showcase our products in the World Cheese Awards and those kinds of things. Sure. But um, I think those kinds of opportunities kind of give you inspiration and energy. You get together with people who all know and think cheese, and it's kind of like one big therapy group, and you just get to immerse yourself in it for a day or two, and you come back energized, even though you you know your particular market and operating environment may be very different to the rest of the world and very constrained. It does give you that kind of new leaf every time you come back at. I think we can do this and I think we can do that. So I'm using this time to really put everything up on the wall, move the chess pieces around. What if we did this? What if we did that? What are the numbers? Now that I know a lot more about the cost of production, you know, how do we need to have our pricing in the future? These, these are the things that we, I, you know, as I, I think I was talking to Drew Baker last week and I said, you know, I'm going to try to make, lemonade with the lemons and he said well i think you should shoot for limoncello so <laughs> that's what we're doing that sounds like truth uh why why do why do the simple thing when you could do uh, something really complicated but potentially delicious exactly exactly <laughs> and that's actually how i started this business i didn't start making the simple uh microwave experiment of mozzarella and i didn't start doing uh, goat's cheese which which i discovered maybe months later which was far simpler to me i started off wanting to make cheddar and 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 at one point playing around and somehow ended up making it um it's so i literally already kind of started off by experimenting with the most difficult of things to do um just because i liked the challenge so this has presented that challenge to me, albeit I wouldn't wish this challenge on my worst enemy. And globally, I'm, even in, in my own country, I'm very painfully aware that not only are people dying and more people are going to die, um, we've had, we're up to 60 cases in, in just three weeks uh, mm. for a population that's 280,000 and two deaths. Mm. So this is moving like wildfire through our population. Not only are people going to die, but people are already impoverished. Those that are already marginal and in the informal sector are already at the point of desperation. So I'm very aware of the casualties, both financially as well as psychosocially. Um, that we are going to face in this very small country. And, and all I'm doing to maintain hope, especially with my staff, is saying, them, saying to them, look, you know, we're in a position to at least help this country recover, to be part of the recovery, because there has to be a recovery at some point. I don't know when it's coming, but there has to be one. And, and when that recovery does come, it, it's interesting because... The, 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 the focus that, that I've seen from producers here is looking at more of a local structure. So, you know, producers that are more uh, traditionally associated with selling into, say, wholesalers or distributors or into supermarkets and things like that are having to sell their product on a more local basis. So um, I was speaking to a lady called Giuliana yesterday who makes a lovely wash drying cheese called Baronet. Um and they've never really considered their local market, so local farmers' markets, local farm shops, 
they've really only ever aimed for that big wholesale market in London. That's not to say they're a big producer by any stretch of the imagination. They're tiny, but they've sort of had all their eggs in that wholesale basket. And I think their experience from this is that there is both, you know, fiscally a very valuable market just just on their doorstep, but also, you know, the, the value of being part of a community. I mean, it interests me the way you you speak about the structure and you know the way things are in Barbados. Is is do you think we might see a change towards you know producers who actually make things locally, or or is that so tied in with the supermarkets and you know foreign importers and things like that that that's a hard model to break? Yeah, so I think it's a hard model to break, but I do think that um, you know I guess as they say, nature abhors the vacuum. Um, what I think people have become very aware of in in the last week or two is how utterly dependent we are on imports. Um, it is felt that 75%, 75 cents out of every dollar of, uh, of that is spent on food in this country goes to an imported good um, for consumption. And I think that while we've talked about that statistic in a very macro sort of, you know, we need to grow what we eat kind of way, I think that this situation has just brought it very home to the whole, the household. And the household is not making decisions about imported versus local. They're making decisions about what is available. Mm. And it's become very clear that what is available is locally produced. So it started with vegetables because we don't have a large food manufacturing base here. Um, and most of the, the manufactured things are like spices and condiments, seasonings, those kinds of things. Um, but the farmers, for example, are under immense pressure now to deliver vegetables to persons who are accustomed to getting them from the supermarket, but they can't go to the supermarket. And even if they do go to the supermarket now, the supermarket's going to have a very, very limited range of items which have been imported and which have been in cold storage for God knows how long. So the quality is not going to be the best. Everything's going to kind of look wilted and worse for wear. Um, but the, the farmers are able to deliver fresh vegetables that are in season. One of the biggest challenges in this market has been to get people to understand this whole question of seasonality. Again, when you have an imported, a heavily import-based market, you don't have a sense of what's available then. It, the broccoli is always there on the shelf. It's never going to dawn on you that that broccoli has a particular season. It's never going to dawn on you that we don't have the appropriate soil type to, to grow broccoli. And of course, no, you really love broccoli. And how are you going to make a choice between broccoli and, let's say, okras? which are available year-round here in Barbados and grown here when your taste is already oriented to broccoli. So people are going through some shocks to their system in terms sure. of how they, you know, preferences, taste, and then understanding that if it's locally available, locally produced, it means you're not reliant on the supermarket. You're not breaking the curfew to try and get this thing because the farmers do have permission to move around so they can bring the vegetables to you. You don't then have to put gas in your vehicle to get to the supermarket. So there's some, we're still coming down to, you know, dollars and cents considerations, but mm -hmm. at the very least, um, the issue now is no longer 
about how expensive the okras might be. And I must commend our farmers. The, the prices have not been put up. The prices look to be the same as they would in any given season based on availability. And so sweet potatoes were $2 a pound a month ago. They're still $2 a pound now. So that's really encouraging. And we are getting a range of vegetables that are extremely wholesome and nutritious and give you lots of options for how you prepare. You can get some green, you can get some orange, and you can get some red. You can eat with your eyes, as the nutritionists encourage you to do. <laughs> and um, people also feel that because this is still a country that um, there's still a heavy presence of the notion of sort of traditional herbs for healing and herbs that are good for you and so on. And everybody's trying to get their antioxidant in. I mean, the island's sold out of all of the prepared vitamin C. So to the extent that you can get fruits coming into season, so mangoes are coming into season, um, you're getting lots of herbs, you're getting lots of uh, spices like turmeric, which is very, very um, good for you in a, from a health standpoint. And so people are getting a range of items that are also healthy and adding value to their nutritional intake. So when we kind of stretch that into things like cheese, again, it is local, it's locally sourced, 98% it, uh, of the inputs are locally derived. You, there is a, so you're really starting to kind of understand what global supply chain you've been part of and the fact that you've taken what's been put on offer. So you've exercised choice, but you've exercised choice based on things that have been provided. Mm. Now people, we have all these online, uh, on Facebook, different groups about local delivery and all the farmers, all the manufacturers are using this to help to keep their products you know, in circulation during this time. So as to what it looks like when it's over, um, I think that the model, that hardened model will still be there. But I think that model will be under some pressure because I actually think that because we are so reliant on the imports, I think our supply chain is going to be disrupted for quite a long time. The UK has been con constraining their manufacturers to, to fill, you know, local orders first, as can be expected. The U.S. is doing the same thing. Um, and then on top of that, it's not to say, like, for example, we get a lot of our orange juice out of Florida. Well, you know, it's not like COVID has spared Florida. So you have disruptions because of the virus in the source market. Then because of those disruptions, the quantities being produced, it's lower. And then those quantities are invariably being diverted for local and national consumption before export. So we are, we are gonna face, in, in addition to this crunch of where we are impacted directly by the virus, we're also going to be faced with shortages right away through the year. As long as this mess lasts in the UK, in the EU, and in the US, which are our major source markets, then it's going to be a longer, curve. It might not be a spike, a, a big spike for us, but it's going to be a longer curve associated with the disruption of the food chain. And that's going to create, I think, opportunities for local manufacturers such as myself 
to fill those gaps. We can't, you know, we, we are a drop in the bucket, but it, it does mean that people will start orienting themselves to our products just simply because they're available. So you get those who are your tried and tested uh, supporters who love your product and, and the product is good. And then you're going to get another set of people who think, right, okay, this is the, this is the thing that's there. So we're going we're gonna to just keep buying, we're going to buy this because it's there. And I mean, either way, I'll take both clients, quite frankly. I'll take them all, whatever your motivation is for. If you want to shoot darts at my team, no problem as long as you buy it. Um, but that is what I think is, is going to, we, we have not yet, I think, felt even, you know, one-tenth of what really is going to be the crisis because we really are at the beginning of the crisis here it's just that it's impacted us in a very quick and severe way we've not had time to adjust we've watched it you know happen steam rolling across the, the world it's kind of like a tsunami that you just watch coming and all of a sudden it hits and you don't have any time to, to make any preparation it sounds as you say nature abhors a vacuum it sounds like a vacuum is going to be created and 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 you know if if you and other local food producers can fill that vacuum and feed the people of barbados that's that's in many ways that's one of those positives that i guess we all have to cling on to at the moment exactly exactly this is really nothing more than trying to maintain hope in a situation that's very dire um they've just predicted, for example, that there's going to be an overactive hurricane season. Now, for us in the Caribbean, I think we're all just putting up our hands and saying, okay, could, could you just stop now? Yeah, like, you can't give us COVID and a hurricane too. Can, can you delay this active season for maybe another two years? <laughs> this is just not, this is hardly fair. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, absolutely. Hardly fair notwithstanding all the discussions about COVID, it, at the end of the day, it's about people and people who do different things in our society, in our community. And I think the more you highlight that, the more you put names and faces and personalities to, to this thing called COVID and, and help people to refocus on the fact that communities need to be preserved and we, we have to keep looking for the after. We, we can't all just change our names to COVID. We, we have to define ourselves and what we do beyond this crisis. And it's really important to focus on people and the power that people have to, to move beyond the crisis. So that was Andrea Power. Uh, really great. Really good to talk to her. Um, she's so she's from Hatchman's Cheese in Bridgetown, Barbados, and you know just another view of how uh, COVID nineteen is affecting specifically the world of cheese, but also communities and people. And as Andrea said, it's about people uh, at the end of the day. And hopefully, I'll catch up with her um, down the line to see how she's fared. Her business is faring, uh, you know, post COVID, post hurricane season. Um, and we'll speak to here on the Salomon podcast. If you want to know more about Hatchman's, go to their Instagram, which is Hatchman's Cheeses, or one word, obviously, or Hatchman'sCheeses.com. Uh, and just, just have a little look what they're doing there. Uh, she's really great, really good to talk to, and I look forward to speaking to her again on the Salomon podcast. The Salomon podcast is produced by me, Sam Wilkin. If you want to know more about Selman, go to Selman Sam 
on Instagram and Twitter or check out the website, selliman.co.uk.